Our scripture this morning comes to us from Mark chapter 9, verse 35, and Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you, Chancel Choir, for the, for the lovely anthem. Three weeks ago, we started the series. We talked about what it meant to be a functioning church member, a functioning disciple, we talked about privilege and responsibility and the way those two go together in the church. And then last week, we discussed what it means to be a unifying member. What does unity look like? What is it? What is it not? And how do we move in that direction as God's church? Now, for today, I want us to think about for a while what it means to be an unselfish church member, an unselfish disciple of Jesus Christ. I've been using as a backdrop, and this idea actually came from a book called I Am a Church Member by Tom Rainier, and he's written several other books as well. They're usually very short and very to the point, and sometimes they're difficult things for us to hear and sometimes encouraging things. But I want to begin with just a couple of his thoughts here. Uh, He says, often... I'm tempted to use illustrations of my children in various settings since I have a love for my sons. Even now they're adults with children of their own. I sometimes find myself talking about them and acting like they were still little boys. And Maybe we can identify with that. So he said, I thought I might begin this chapter by giving an illustration about boys fussing and, and fighting because they wanted something their way. But then I began to think about how many times I used to fight with my older brother because I wanted things to go my way right now without compromise. He said I could be a selfish brat. And then he said it's a good thing that we grow out of that phase after we become adults, right? It's even better that we never revert to that phase after we become Christians, right? Wrong, he said, wrong. Christians can sometimes act just like those demanding children, and they want to have everything go their way. Temper tantrums in churches, he said, may not include church members lying on the floor and kicking and screaming, but some come close. But the strange thing about church membership is that you actually give up your preferences, he said, when you join a church. Don't get me wrong. There may be much about your church that you like a lot, 
but you are there to meet the needs of others. You are there to serve others. You are there to give. You are there to sacrifice. Do you get the picture? Jesus would often say things that confused and confounded his listeners, didn't he? And it confuses and confounds us some, even today. Even, or maybe I should say, especially his followers had a tendency to fight with one another. Maybe not fist fight with one another, but argue with one another, debate loudly with one another. Let me read the two verses preceding Mark 9.35. Andrew read Mark 9.35, but the two verses that lead up to that, I want to share with you now, they're important. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent because they had been arguing among themselves about who was the greatest. Amazing, isn't it, how Jesus seemed to overhear these conversations. They were walking along the road, probably behind him just a little bit, thinking, oh, he can't hear us. <laughs> well, yes, he can, and yes, he did. Can you imagine all of that? Tom Renier said, the closest followers of Jesus were having a me-first fight. So Jesus put up a stop sign, sat down, and called all of these grown folks together. And then he spoke the words that are our key verse today. Whoever wants to be first must be last and must be the servant of all. When you have loved to have been a fly on the wall, observing the expressions on their faces, overhearing what they were whispering, he nailed those self-serving apostles, didn't he? Don't we love to see or at least read about other folks getting, quote, put in their places? <laughs> Serves them right, we say. Then the truth comes home. These words of Jesus are for us as well. For all of us at, at some time in our life, maybe right now, those words. As church members, our motivation to get our preference should not move to the top of our list. We're called to be last, not first. We are set apart to be servants. We're not here to be served. If I might paraphrase some words that President John Fitzgerald Kennedy made famous, you remember. I'm paraphrasing now. He said, ask not what your church can do for you, but ask what you can do for your church. Unselfish church members, servants. There is undoubtedly a link between these two and maybe the words from Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. We essentially sang those words in the opening hymn and then they were read again for us. And maybe we can discern the link that's there. In verse 5, Paul writes, Let that same mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. And then he elaborates by citing an early hymn. Scholars don't always agree about the source of this hymn, where it came from. Um, did it arise in another context? And Paul borrowed it and used it in this context. Fred Craddock reminds us that hymns and confessions and creedal kind of statements are not unusual in the writings of Paul. He would borrow these things at times from other writers who were trying to put their faith down and trying to express their faith and sometimes borrow their internal structure and their content and their context, and it would 
fit right in, or he wouldn't make it fit with what he was trying to say. In, the name, in this hymn that Paul quoted in our passage, the name that's used for Jesus is Lord. Submission to the Lordship of Christ, not confined to the human realm. Christ is Lord over every power in the created order. There is no place in the universe, no created thing beyond the object, but beyond the redeeming act of the servant of Christ. And the central act of Jesus, the giving of himself, is central to our faith as an act of humble service and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Something as horrible and as shameful as that. Now, a careful reading of the hymn made it clear that Christ emptied himself, poured himself out, served and died without thought of reward. That's not why he was doing it. Not just to make his way to heaven, not just to put all of that behind him, but a self-giving, sacrificial act of love, unlike any that we know. One of the preeminent theologians of the 20th century was Karl Barth, and he said, Put it like this, he said, the door was locked. The tomb of Christ was not a tunnel, but it was a cave. Christ acted on our behalf, gave himself on our behalf without thinking there's a reward beyond this. If I can just do this, I'll get here. But giving himself, acting out of a deep love that that is so hard to comprehend sometimes. How powerful that is when we stop and think about it it's the it's the backbone of our faith but sometimes we set it aside and sometimes we forget it there may be some disagreement about the background of this hymn in philippians 2 where paul got it exactly who wrote it where it originated but in the foreground is the church distracting itself from its witness by discord by individualism apparently marked by the self-serving behavior And Paul was helping with that, or he was trying to help. In Paul's judgment, what the church needs is not a scolding. Church doesn't need to be fussed at or chewed out. That's not what he's up to here, but a reminder of the event that created and defined their life together, the self-emptying of Jesus Christ, the offering of himself for us all, a deep, deep love. And your relationship with each other, he said, think this way. Let this be the governing attitude of the group. For that which makes the church the church is having the mind of Christ Jesus. Sets us apart from any other organization, any other group on the face of the earth. The Apostle Paul often came up with answers, it seems like, that were much bigger than the problem being addressed. Someone put it like this, it said like he took out a cannon to shoot a rabbit. But Paul understood all the issues in the church to be theological issues, no matter how they appeared, how simple they appeared. Paul did not reserve theology just for seminary classes or for clergy folks or clergy meetings. It was the church's theology, the church's faith. Paul did not subscribe to the notion that congregational problems and disputes should be answered practically and expediently. He wanted us to look at the big answer, the big picture, the big question. Who are we and why are we here? And do we have the mind of Christ in our hearts and in our lives? 
On the contrary, small issues could be an indication that the church was suffering from one of the biggest problems of all, pettiness. Paul's response to pettiness was a big answer. A big answer. It was a hymn. It was a creed. It was a confession of faith at stake was not so much the question of truth as that of size. When the church forgets what brings us into being, what nourishes us, what causes us to make a difference in this world, and what matures the community of faith. And that central event is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says it so beautifully in the book of Philippians. It's my favorite of Paul's writings. He's not fussing at folks so much as encouraging and reminding and, and celebrating the power of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. When his mind is in us, then we become servants in word and deed. And there was, there is no such thing as a selfish servant. Unselfish church members, unselfish disciples are servants always of the Most High God. This passage from Philippians, this servant hymn, is often the epistle reading for Palm Sunday. And we think Palm Sunday, triumphal entry, glorious thing, big celebration. But it reminds us that Palm Sunday is not so much about a triumphal entry and a parade or a protest march. Not as much about that as it is about following the path of service and obedience. Selfish feet will always choose an easier path. Selfish feet will always want to be on the wide road, the easy road, the smooth road. And that's not where we're always called to be. In being found in human form, incarnate, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Even death on a cross, death reserved for the most vile of criminals, for the worst offenders. Tom Rainer says that the word servant occurs 57 times in the New Testament. I've not gone through and counted it. I, I like his writing. I trust him to a point. I'm not going to argue with that. I'll take his word for it. 57 times. Sometimes it refers to a person who has an official role in a household. But many times it has to do with the role that we are to assume as Christ-like people, Jesus people, Christians. Also, the word serve itself occurs 58 times in the New Testament. So all throughout the New Testament, it's over and over again. It's a theme. It's an underlying theme. It's at the heart of the gospel, this call to be unselfish servants. Jesus said we must be last of all and servant of all. And that may not sound like every church member or every disciple that we know. Members, disciples, sometimes demand their preferences, their desires, and the way they've always done it. But Jesus said we are to serve. We are to never find, we will never find joy in church membership when we are constantly seeking everything to turn out our way. It's not going to happen. But paradoxically, we find the greatest joy when we decide to put ourselves at the bottom of the list in our own needs and our own wants after what's best for the body, what's best for us as servants. That's what unselfish church folk do and clergy as well. 
a few years ago, there was a survey taken, and I don't know how they identified all of these churches, but they took a survey of churches that appeared to be completely inwardly focused, just turning in on themselves, forgetting the community, forgetting the world beyond that God loves so much, a survey of these churches that had turned inward. They were largely self-serving. And the survey found that there were 10 dominant features or patterns of behavior in these different churches. And I want to share those with you just to think about. Not in an accusing kind of way, but something for us to think about as we examine our own hearts. And what kind of members, what kind of disciples are we? Number one, in those churches that had turned inward, there were many worship wars. No changes in music, no changes in the order of service. All the same. Number two, prolonged meetings that deal with small things while ignoring the great commission and the great commandment. Number three, facility focus where the buildings themselves became icons. Number four, program driven, problematic when programs become an end in themselves. Ministries become an end in themselves and not a means to a greater end. Number five, they were inwardly focused budget-wise. There was more emphasis on keeping insiders comfortable than on reaching those who are still outside the body of believers. Number six, there was an inordinate demand for attention from the staff and the lay leadership of the church. Number seven, there were attitudes of entitlement. Demanding special treatment. Number eight, there were greater concern about change than about the changes that the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring about in a human life. Number nine, there was anger and hostility. Some folks always complaining and blaming and never happy. And number 10, of these characteristics of inwardly focused churches, there was evangelistic apathy. Not concerned about those who had not yet heard the good news of Jesus Christ, but concerned about having their own needs met. But I don't want to end on a note of discouragement and disappointment. I want you to allow me, if you will, a brief moment of testimony from my own memory, my own heart, and then a homemade parable, a very brief homemade parable that that I like. By way of testimony of the church, and I've told you this before, it's always been a part of my life. Baptized when I was a wee little baby, always a part of the church. There's the church I grew up in, and there's the churches that I have been blessed and privileged to serve over the last 45 years, including this church, Newton First United Methodist Church, this great, strong, caring church. Most of the hundreds or more church folks that I've known across the years have been unselfish, caring members, gracious disciples, the unselfish variety. And on this Sunday, a week after Father's Day, I'm remembering one of the most unselfish church members I've ever been privileged to know, my own father, my own dad. In particular, I'm recalling a fall evening, I may have told you about this before, over 50 years ago, maybe longer now, at my home church. Most of the classrooms there were heated by gas space heaters. And every fall, those heaters had to be checked out. They could be safety hazards. 
the pilot lights had to be lit and all that done. And on this evening in particular that I remember my dad and Delmas Williamson were there in the church building going through room by room and checking out all those heaters and relighting them. And they let me tag along. You know, church buildings at night when you're the only one there can be intriguing, sometimes scary, sometimes mysterious places. Over the years, I've learned to wander around in in church buildings and they don't frighten me. But I was just an elementary school child and I was there and it was so great to be there with these two men. They thought they were helping to prepare the church for the cold weather that was just around the corner to make sure all was in order. And they were. But they were also creating an impressionable memory for an impressionable elementary school kid. Now, in the grand scheme of things, that's not all that grand. But God has a way of taking small acts of service and blessing them and multiplying them, and then they begin to reach across the years and across the miles, and they become part of who we are. And for the last 45 years... I could write a war and peace length novel about all the unselfish church folks that I've known and loved. And I don't think I would be revealing any secrets or breaking any confidences to say that so many of those folks are right here in this church, in this sanctuary this morning. And especially this past week, walking around and observing and being a small part of the Vacation Bible School and seeing how folks gave so graciously of their time and such a loving spirit and and loving and welcoming the children, unselfish kind of folks. You know who they are. You're some of them. Thank you for that. By way of testimony... And then by way of a brief homemade parable. This is about a guy who was a part of his church council. It was a church not as large as this one. And at a church council meeting, the question came up, the church buildings need painting inside and out. And so this guy made the case that they needed to hire a painter. That was hard work. They wanted it done right. They wanted it to last for a long time. And so the meeting went on and on and on, as church meetings tend to do sometimes, over issues that in the long haul maybe don't matter, but, but maybe they do. And then when it came time for a vote, finally, the church council voted they were going to do it with volunteers. They were going to reject his idea. They were going to vote down his proposition. And so they said, anybody who can help out We need you to be here next Tuesday morning at 9 o'clock. Well, next Tuesday morning at 9 o'clock, the pickup truck rolls into the church ground. And in the back, it's full of all kinds of painting equipment and gear and tarps and all this kind of things. And this guy who voted, whose proposal was voted down... He jumped out of the truck in his overalls and his painter's cap, and he was the first one there. Praise God for those unselfish folk among us who right now and across the years have blessed us and blessed God's church that the church might be a blessing to a broken 
and hurting and gospel-starved world. Amen.